So I remember even thinking, like, what would I call this book? And I thought, you know, rocks, roots, and rattlesnakes, that's perfect, you know, because that's what you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't trip and hurt yourself, break an ankle or whatever. I mean, you're always looking for the next rock and avoiding the roots. And certainly in the afternoon, in the summertime, you're looking for rattlesnakes on every step of the way. You know, that's exactly, that exactly describes, you know, what my focus is nearly the whole time on the trail. This is Unconditioning, discovering the voice within with Whitney and Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week I have with me Craig Eckert. Craig is a retired geoscience advisor living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and throughout his 38-year career as a geologist, he's worked for numerous companies in the exploration and production sector of the petroleum industry. And during that time, he also found a passion of exploring the earth in search for hydrocarbons. And that adventure did not stop there as he, in 2020, walked the entire Appalachian Trail and wrote a book about his experiences called Rocks, Roots, and Rattlesnakes. Craig is also a former co-worker and a colleague and friend of my dad, and so it was fun to talk to him about his experiences working with my dad and how the industry has changed over the years, and just a delightful person. So here is Craig talking about his newest release of his first book, Rocks, Roots, and rattlesnakes. Yeah. So, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, I've been I've been busy just uh, advertising my book and preparing for uh, a talk I'm going to be giving on Thursday at the oh. PAPG. So, uh, looking forward to that. And um, yeah, what is your talk on? So, I'm going to talk about my Appalachian Trail trip back in 2020, and um, it's being I'm, I'm addressing a geological group, right? The PAPG, right. you know, about that. Yeah. And so I, I added a lot more geology to the talk mm -hmm. that I had in my book. I mean, I have a lot of geology in the book, but it's just musings, you know, here and there about some of the rocks that I encountered from time to time. Whereas um, I'm trying to do a little bit more of a an overview of you know why the rocks are where they are and, and focus more on that than the other parts of my story so yeah. Yeah, i'm just addressing the audience and what they would probably find more interesting yeah that's cool you can adjust your story to fit a certain niche so to speak yeah that's right so right. my my podcast is about following your authentic voice mm -hmm. um, which i feel like you probably encountered on your trip on the Appalachian Trail quite a bit um, mm -hmm. with your thoughts by yourself. Uh, one of the first questions that I ask my guests is when is the first time that you realized that you had this voice inside of yourself that was guiding you and it wasn't influenced by your family or your environment or your education but it was purely just something that you knew was guiding you? Hmm. Well I guess that's a good question and, and I don't know that I've given that a great deal of thought. 
Um, although I can I can probably say that um, what you know what I what I did over the last couple of years and these various hikes, in particular the Appalachian Trail through hike, um, it's something that's uh, always been of interest to me, and I just haven't really had the time because of work and other obligations to do something like that. So I guess you could say that that might have been my inner voice sort of coaxing me along to, you know, fulfill some of my goals that I had that I now have the opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah. And um, so maybe that would be my interpretation of how to answer your question. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Let's go back to when you first became interested in geology and rocks <laughs> in general. Um, do you have a specific moment that you realized that? Um, well, I, I can't say that when I was young, I wanted to be a geologist, but when I was young, I was always kind of interested in the outdoors and, and rocks and things like that. And, uh, but, but I was really naive um, in many ways. Um, I, like, for example, the career that I went into was petroleum geology, and I, I really didn't even know much about there being an oil industry, let alone a major bituminous coal industry, you know, anywhere near me. I knew about the anthracite region because a lot of my uh, uh, relatives on my mother's side, they, they came from that area and some of them had worked in the coal mines. Um, and, and so when I thought of, you know, fossil fuels, I guess, which is the field that I went into, um, all I really knew about was you know, that small aspect of it, the anthracite region up in uh, East Central Pennsylvania. And um, so uh, when I, you know, when I first got to college, um, I took my first, one of my first science classes, my, well, my first science class, I believe was a geology 101 class. And um, just a few weeks into that class, I thought, oh, this is the coolest thing in the world. And I immediately changed my major to geology. And then, you know, I never looked back. So that would have been perhaps the, the turning point where I, I decided that, you know, I wanted to be a geologist. And, and from there on, it just, uh, it just flowed. Yeah. So when you were younger, did your family encourage you to explore the outdoors? Well, um, so I, I guess I grew up in a time when, you know, we would go outside after school every day and not come home until dinner. Right. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of young people still do that today, but it's more common that, you know, they're inside, you know, doing something on either a video game or, you know, TV or whatever. And not to say that we didn't watch TV. Of course we did, but it just seemed like we spent an awful lot of time in our spare time um, outdoors, just um, you know, running around the, the the fields. And we had a field in our backyard, and behind that there was sort of this big drainage drainage ditch for the neighborhood, and it was kind of a cool place to explore and play. And so we spent a lot of time there, and um, 
just riding bikes around, you know, on weekends um, and, and not coming home for hours. And, and that was perfectly fine. And no one thought that it was dangerous or anything like that because maybe it was a little bit of a simpler, safer time um, in those days. So yeah, I guess the, uh, the encouragement to just explore, you know, your world outside around you was a little bit more encouraged by parents in those days yeah. than maybe today. Sure. Sort of like stay out of my hair and go play outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to think about that. That one, uh, uh, I've, I've seen this a couple of times. It's a, it's a short little comedy sketch. I think it was from SNL. And it was, you know, the difference between when the phone, when the, I'm sorry, when the uh, doorbell rang when you were a kid versus when the doorbell rings today. And you know, <laughs> in the old days, everyone was excited. You know, they all gathered around the door to see who it was. And today, everyone hides behind the couches. I know it's an exaggeration, but it's sort of, a, <laughs> you know, a little yeah. example of uh, the differences. Yeah. Did you grow up with any kind of religious influences or beliefs? I did. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when I when I was growing up, we went to church every Sunday, Sunday school prior to church every Sunday morning. And then um, we had youth group. I guess when I was, oh, I don't know when that started, maybe 12 years old or something like that, maybe a little younger. But we would get together Sunday nights, I believe it was Sunday nights, and have youth group meetings with our uh, their youth group leaders, usually at their house. And our group consisted of anywhere from 10 to 20 in a, a year or two of each other. And, um, and then my mom was a Sunday school teacher and my dad was on the consistory. And so we, you know, we just went to church every single Sunday. Yeah. And that's just how it was. <laughs> so, so what I'm thinking is that you, went from that life to studying science in college. And so I'm wondering if that challenged your belief system at all, as far as um, religion goes, mixing it I with never science. Found, yeah, I, I see what you're, what you're asking. And I never really felt like there was a uh, uh, an issue between believing, have, you know, having faith, um, whatever that means to different yeah. people, right? And, um, and believing in, well, I hate to use the word believing in science because you don't believe in science, you believe in a religion, you understand science and um, learn it, learn about it and apply those facts to experiences and experimentation, et cetera. Um, but I never found that there was really, a, for me, there was really um, no problem um having having both i mean we did have friends um who i guess i would consider young earthers and it was always interesting having discussions with them about you know their views on the age of the earth and then what geological evidence you know demonstrates um, i mean we know approximately the age of the earth and and there's there's all sorts of you know, isotopic testing of various elements that can confirm that and so forth. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, it's just, I mean, everyone has their own belief systems. And so right. I 
never really bothered me, but it was always kind of interesting to have those conversations. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you decided to go into geology, was there a point where petroleum geology became the central focus for you? Well, um, I mean, actually, un unbeknownst to me, when I was when I was at West Virginia University, um, you know, the program was very mo very much focused on training young geologists to know everything they needed to know to be a successful petroleum geologist. And, um, and I'm sure that was brought up, you know, many times, but it, it kind of fell on deaf ears for me. And, and I really didn't know that's what I was being trained for. I mean, maybe I did, but I don't really remember. But that's how it seems when I think back on it. I, I just remember that all my courses were really interesting. I enjoyed them and, you know, it was what I wanted to do, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with it when I graduated. And um, I remember, you know, after graduation, I, I just went around to, oh, local companies all around Pennsylvania that might have been in the geotechnical field or um, environmental geology and um, I don't remember what else, but I had a lot of interviews, but they weren't in petroleum. And it wasn't until, um, you know, a little time after that, several months, maybe, I don't remember what the timing was, but that I started uh, realizing that, you know, what I was really trained for was oil and gas geology. And so then I started, uh, I started banging on doors for, uh, for those kinds of jobs, and eventually, I, I, I did, I did get one, and you know, just went on from there. And so, where did that take you? Because I know that you've worked all across the country within this profession. So yeah, so what, yeah, what was the first job that you acquired as a petroleum geologist, and what was that experience like? Yeah, so it was interesting. So actually, the first job that I had um, was with a, a very small company in West Virginia. And it only lasted about three weeks. And, and I actually quit that job because I thought that I was going to be working with, you know, maps and, and looking at rocks. And I don't, I don't know what I thought, but <laughs> what they wanted me to do was <laughs> um, chase rigs, which is, you know, commonly what a lot of young geologists start out doing. But that really wasn't what I had in mind that I felt like I was going to be trapped in that um, in that type of a position um, for too long, and and that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And so, anyway, I um, I I left that after three weeks, and then finally, um, after you know many weeks or I don't know how long it was anymore, but um, of persistent um, inquiries to a company called Consolidated Gas in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Um, I ended up getting a position there and they had so many geologists coming and going because it was one of the, it was at the height of one of the booms in the late seventies. And, um, and in this industry, it's always been boom bust cycles as yeah. probably aware. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, so, they were hiring their, their young geologists as well scouts. And you might ask, well, what's a well scout? Well, <laughs> I didn't know either, but uh, 
uh, it turned out that it was a, it was a position where um, a person is given a company car and an expense account, and he he or she is told to you know just go visit all the operators in your you know given geographic area. And mine was Pennsylvania, and um, trade information. And so I you know I had continuous communication with our geology group in Clarksburg and they would say well you know we're drilling here we have these well logs that we're willing to trade and this information and uh, and here's what we would like we would like logs from these operators and in, in this area and you know maybe we can trade and so I would take this big pile of well logs with me and information about the results of, of some of the wells that we had been drilling and I would exchange that for information from these other operators. And so every day I was going out to lunch with the, with the different operators. So it's a really good way to like learn the people in the right. business, learn about the people in the business. And at the same time, um, you know, learning about, you know, where these various operators are, are drilling and what they're drilling for and what the results are. And, and so it was, it was kind of an interesting introduction and that lasted about nine months. And then, and then what the company was doing is they had these, these young well scouts on staff, and then they would um, have an opening eventually, and in their geology department, and so they would bring that well scout in, who already kind of knew a lot from his you know journeys every day and taking people out to lunch and you know talking with these old time operators, and uh, we were just inserted into the department and that's when you know I actually began working as a petroleum geologist just mapping things out and it, it was really just a lot of it was a lot of paperwork like almost every job is you know yeah. work, working up uh, well prognoses and um, keeping maps up to date and this is back before computers by the way <laughs> so <laughs> everything we did took about eight times longer than it does today for a young person going into that same type of job position. Right. So yeah. it was, it was an interesting uh, uh, way, way to enter the industry, but you learn a lot about, um, you know, all the, all the details involved and just getting maps prepared that are meaningful and, can tell a story so that mm -hmm. you can show your manager or or a presentation or you know whoever comes into the office that um, you know needs to understand what it is that you know you know your your program is is planning for that year. So, but it was a lot of fun, and and there were a lot of other people who were there were a lot of other uh, young geologists who are about my same age and they uh, you know they're we were all sort of doing the same thing and and it was an interesting community i've been very fortunate in my career because i've worked for three large companies you know large by appalachian basin standards mm -hmm. and then a couple of uh, independents along the way and um we we moved around a little bit uh, our family moved around from Pittsburgh, uh, from Clarksburg to Pittsburgh, to Ashland, Kentucky, um, to Houston, Texas, and then back to Pittsburgh. And um, I think it was a it was a good experience in general for yeah. everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, and our kids seem to 
you know, they, they seem to acclimate pretty well with the moves. And um, so I think overall that was, it was, a, it was a good experience for the family. Good. I think the most important question that I have is, when did you start working with my dad and what was it like to work with him? Okay. <laughs> oh boy, boy, I'm better watch what I say here. No, well, first of all, I, I knew your dad in college. So we went to field camp together. We had some classes together at WVU. And then um, we went to field camp together. And um, uh, let's see, this would have been in 1978, I think, because it was my junior year. And, um, and I, I believe he and I were in, I'm trying to think if we were in the same group. I think we were because it was maybe 20 students and we were divided into, you know, groups of five, I think, something like that. And uh, we would go out every day and do our field mapping and then come back uh, at the end of the day and, you know, just, um, you know, take all of our field notes and, and put them on a map and, and slowly try to figure out the structure and the uh, the correlated stratigraphy from from outcrop to outcrop, and we were basically just building ge a geologic map as we went, and so that was a I think that was like five weeks down at Camp Wood, West Virginia. So then, um, so then I knew your dad from that, and uh, we kept in touch, you know, in the various companies that we worked for. And I think he started out at Ashland. Yeah. Um, as his first job and he stayed with them for quite a while mm -hmm. and then um after after i left consolidated gas in 1990 so i graduated in 79 and um i worked for consolidated gas and then they moved us up to pittsburgh to form the uh, cng development company and i worked there until 1990 i worked for one year for a company called meridian in pittsburgh was in the Gulf building downtown, which was a really cool place. I mean, the building itself was just amazing. And, and it was a very different experience than I had at Consolidated Gas because uh, Meridian was, uh, was all funded by investors and so forth. But anyway, that only lasted one year. It was a great job, but it was, it was uh, short-lived. So after that, I uh, got hired on by Ashland in Ashland, Kentucky. And that's where, you know, I got to work with your dad again. And, or I got to work with your dad for the first time, I should say. Um, and uh, so we worked together. I think he was working Pike County, mm -hmm. Kentucky, drilling a lot of Devonian shale wells and Berea wells and everything in between. And, um, and then I was, uh, I was assigned to an area that was a little bit to the west of that. I think we called it the West Pikeville District <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he was sort of the old seasoned development geologist who had he had worked that area for a very long time. He knew it like the back of his hand. Oh, and then the other thing was um, oh, and also um, uh, Joe Morris. He had also been a West Virginia grad, but I didn't know him in college. Um, he was there, and then two other geologists. So we all got along really well. It was a great team. Um, and um, the other reason that, that I, I liked Ashland and the reason that I wanted to work there was 
because for for years, I mean, maybe decades, they would drill one or two deep wells in the Rome trough every year. And the name of the company was Ashland Exploration. So I remember thinking, well, this is going to be really great because, you know, I love exploration. And, um, you know, the company drills these deep wells to the basement every, every year. And, uh, and I wanted to be part of that. Well, the year that I came, they just, um, the, the company decided that they were just going to focus on development drilling only. And so no more exploration. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so, so I got there and it was, you know, very different uh, than it had been prior to um, in terms of, you know, the, the amount of money they spend each year on uh, exploring the Rome trough and, and, um, and drilling these deep uh, basement tests. Uh, so all of that was in the files and was fresh on everyone's mind because they had, you know, been doing this forever. And, and you know, and when I came along, it, it came to an end. But, but we, we still did continue to acquire, you know, geophysical data and seismic data and so forth. So uh, I got to work with that. And uh, I picked your dad's brain a lot about, uh, you know, past wells that he had been involved with. And, um, and uh, Joe Morris as well. And uh, so, so, you know, I got, to, I got to work with the data and came up with some prospects and so forth, but nothing ever got drilled because the company <laughs> was just finished with drilling exploration wells and they were just oh. focusing nothing more than uh, development. And, um, and what, what that eventually led to was um, the company um, ended up being sold. And in advance of that, uh, we were all given offers. You know, I think this was in 1995. Um, I remember the, uh, the vice president um, of exploration and production down in Houston, um, Jeff Lawn. He was a, a very nice guy. And, and I ended up working with him for a year in Houston then. Um, he came up and, and uh, gave the old do as we say and no one gets hurt speech. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we say that tongue in cheek because basically what it means is we have a job for you, but it's in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, they, uh, and the company did decide to keep one geologist in, um, in Ashland, Kentucky. And that was your dad, Junior. And I, it was primarily because he had the most experience you know, working those plays, and and he was he was the seasoned pro at the uh, at the type of wells that needed to be drilled, and okay. so I think that only lasted for another year. Yeah, and then that was the end of Ashland, and they sold to somebody, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. I just remember going into his office when I was younger and playing with the colored pencils and looking at uh -huh. the maps and it right. sounded like it's it seemed like a really exciting job to me <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean colored pencils come on right. <laughs> yeah and that and that's another interesting thing you know I mentioned before <clears throat> how when I first started out um, it was all before computers and it wasn't real before computers but it was before we applied um, computers to um, mapping and before all of the software packages that are so common today um, uh, were, were released. And, and I, re I remember when I was in Pittsburgh, um, 
it was, must have been like 1986, and we all were told that we were each going to get a computer. And I thought, well, first of all, I don't need a computer. <laughs> I mean, and, and I have a secretary who can write all of my memos for me and all of my reports and so forth. And back in those days, you know, wrote everything longhand, you handed it to a secretary and then she, yeah. she wrote it, typed it up. And I thought, well, that means I'm gonna have to do all this typing. I don't even like to type. And uh, <laughs> it's called keyboarding, I know, but, <laughs> but anyway, those were my perceptions at the time. And it's just funny how that, it's just so dramatically changed today. And you wonder where that's going to be in 20 yeah. years from now. I mean, we won't even have to touch anything. We'll just, well, we can do that today, right? Voice to text. And I, I use that quite a bit, in fact, because right. I don't like to type. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you said also about the maps kind of telling a story. Because I imagine when you input that into a computer, it doesn't tell the same story, right? Well, that's true. Um, in fact, that's one of one of the battles that we've always had, particularly guys like your dad and me, where we we grew up learning to contour and 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 understanding just how important it is to, you know, draw the contours with a bias. Like if you have a geological bias, you know that you're, what you're drawing here is a uh, is a channel sandstone or a point bore deposit or a uh, or a barrier bar or something. Um, you can instill that geological bias into how the contours are drawn so that the geometry of that sand body or, or the structure and the structural grain, where the faults are, et cetera, you can put all of that into the map because you, you, you know what the data is telling you. You know not only what the data is telling you, but you know what the bias is that should be influencing how that map is drawn. Whereas, you know, the software that we typically use today, I mean, it tries to do all of those things. There are ways that you can bias the way that the grid mm -hmm. um, uh, sees the data and, um, and then draws the contours, but it's not quite the same as doing it by hand. And you get all these edge effects and a lot of bullseyes and weird things uh, that aren't geological at all that have to be fixed. And, and uh, a lot of young people today and um, not everyone's the same, obviously. I mean, some uh, young geologists um, know and appreciate just what I said, um, even though they're, you know, they're, they're younger and, and maybe not as experienced in that. But, but a lot of maps that I've seen, they're just, you know, we just you set it up, press a button, and that's the map that gets shown in a presentation. And, you know, you cringe when you see it because it's no that's not that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway that's that's something that everyone has to struggle with yeah yeah so what are some of the other ways that you've seen the industry transform over the years mm. well um it's always been very cyclic and you know we're going through a boom period now although it's it's a very measured boom period and, and I'm not involved with it because I'm retired so I could tell you a lot more what it's like in this particular period if I was actually still working in the industry but 
but I can tell you from experience that the uh, the past boom bust cycles, it's a whole lot more fun going into a boom period than coming out of one because, right. and it's all commodity price driven. So when natural gas prices go up or oil prices go up, you know, uh, companies higher. Um, I think the average length of a cycle is something like seven years. It varies, obviously, but, um, and it's, you know, typically um, what, what drives the, uh, the spikes and the troughs in the commodity prices is a whole host of things. And, you know, you can imagine, I mean, you, you read the papers and you see what's going on. It's, it's politics, it's uh, geo, world geopolitics. Right. Um, all sorts of things, um, perceived supply and demand uh, changes. Um, and, and a lot of it's, you know, built on emotion. And so it's not always a rational thing that, that right. drives commodity prices. But um, let's see, I, I'm trying to get back to your original question. So you're, um, you're, you're wondering. You're on track, you're on track. Um... Yeah, I was just wondering how the industry has transformed over the years that you've experienced. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Were you trained like as a geologist to understand the geopolitics of it all? Was that part of your education or was that something you had to learn along the way? Uh, it's definitely something that I think most of us just learned along the way. I don't know if that's typically um, part of... I want to speak for for others, I guess, but I I don't think that's typically part of uh, the training of a of a petroleum geologist, with the exception of maybe a a class in I don't know um, current events or the history of oil or something mm -hmm. like that. But um, but no, for me anyway, I I think I I just sort of learned that through through having lived through it. And, uh, and, and okay, so to address your, your main question about how things have changed, well, I did mention, you know, going from pencil and paper and erasers, and erasers are a big part of it, by the way, because <laughs> every, every line you draw, you erase about three times, and, um, and there's always a big thick pile of eraser dust underneath everyone's wrap. <laughs> and, uh, um, so that's changed a lot, obviously. Um, and then also, I think the uh, certainly the type of drilling that we do today is primarily resource plays and horizontal drilling. And, um, and I remember when I was in Houston, um, um, our, our VP, uh, Jeff Lund, uh, one of the things that he, he told all of us was that, you know, there's, there's uh, three main things that have changed that you're gonna to have to understand, be expert in if you wanna survive in the industry. And one was horizontal drilling, one was 3D seismic, and one was um, new completion technologies associated with those horizontal wells. And uh, I think for the geologists, the, the first two I mentioned were the most important um, using 3D and then uh, understanding and you know being proficient at uh, drilling horizontal wells um, because that's where everything is today. Um, all of the resource plays that that drive production 
throughout the US. The reason that, you know, several years ago, you know, we were a net exporter mm -hmm. um, of hydrocarbons um, is because those resource plays are so prolific. And, you know, I, li I like to say that, you know, we've, we've gone from, you know, just the, the drilling of vertical wells, you only access, you know, so many net feet of pay with each well, whereas when you drill a horizontal well, I like to say we're going for the jugular because basically you're drilling a horizontal well into the, the source bed that contains all of those hydrocarbons. Um, in the past, most wells drilled into conventional reservoirs. So the, the source beds were what we call the, the kitchen or the, you know, that, that's where the hydrocarbons were generated. The, you know, the heat and pressure over time caused the uh, organic material to be converted into oil and then eventually natural gas and everything in between. And then over geologic time, those hydrocarbons, you know, due to the incredible amount of pressure generated during um, what's called catagenesis or the conversion to hydrocarbons, um, that pressure drove those hydrocarbons up fractures and into pore space, whether it was a sand body or a oolitic limestone porosity zone or something like that. And so in the old days, you know, we were just drilling, looking for those, those individual conventional pockets of hydrocarbons, whereas today we're looking at the actual source beds themselves. And the reason we didn't do that earlier was, I mean, we always knew there was, you know, incredible volumes of hydrocarbons there, but um, first of all, they were, they were considered um, uh, too tight to be produced. In other words, the tiny little pore space, if there even was any, and we didn't even really understand that in those days um, was was not it was not very well understood and it was thought that because most of these uh, source beds were were uh, shaly that the clay particles would make it impossible to actual actually drill and produce hydrocarbons from these but anyway with with the completion technologies fracking um, and we've been doing fracking since the 40s, it's nothing new, but actually fracking a horizontal well in a source bed, um, black shale, organic shale, that, that's something relatively new that was, um, it was started, um, I guess maybe the, the, the credit is given to the Barnett shale play in Texas. Um, and there was a, a couple of operators down there that sort of championed this. Uh, with Mitchell oil and gas. Anyway, I guess I'm kind of getting long-winded on this. That's but, okay. <laughs> but the so. but the point is the you know the point is that um, you know that's where that's where the big changes occurred uh, between you know the early days of conventional drilling and mm -hmm. and then where it's led today and and why we have such abundant reserves because there's unbelievable amounts of hydrocarbons that can be produced this way. Yeah, that we never knew how to do that in the past, and and now we do. Okay, yeah. So considering that, um, and your wisdom and experience of all the work that you've done, is there anything that makes this boom cycle more unique? And where do you see that going, especially with everything happening 
with Ukraine and Russia. And a lot of people are asking why gas prices are rising here um, because we have such an abundance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on answering that question. Um, a lot of it is, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, politics and uh, um, regulatory um, measures that have been put in place, um, the banning of um, pipelines. Um, I mean, for example, there was a, uh, well, well, you all know about you know about the Keystone Pipeline, and it was supposed to bring um, oil from the tar sands in Canada into the uh, United States and then supply refineries. So, you know, various types of byproducts could be then refined, including gasoline. And and so, you know, with, without that, uh, we're reliant more on, um, you know, our our own, you know, resources here, which are, although they're abundant, um, I think for a combination of reasons, and I don't really want to get political in this right. discussion, but, uh, but for a variety of reasons, certainly including COVID, um, you know, there have been uh, a lot of folks who worked in the oil patch who no longer work in the oil patch and so the the manpower itself is probably down. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain areas where maybe that's um, been able to continue better than others. Um, I know in uh, in some of the basins in uh, in uh, Texas, like the Midland Basin, um, oil production has stayed a little bit higher than some of the other. Shale basins. Um, the Marcellus has seemed to do pretty well, um, but what's frustrating is you have issues in uh, New England where um, there are a lot of people that are just anti-fossil fuels, and um, and the political leaders are also, in general, anti-fossil fuels, and so you know rather than building a pipeline from the Marcellus gas fields, you know, into Boston and some of the other larger metropolitan areas in, in New England, and, and you know, supplying those needs. Um, you know, we as a country um, import a lot of those hydrocarbons from places like Russia, and that makes no sense at all. And I think that's I think that that changes in the wind. Uh, but for the present time, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a very common banter on, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn right. and so yeah. forth. You know, you see that quite a bit because it's just such an obvious flaw in our policy, you know, and we do have the hydrocarbons and the reserves that are available to be produced in this country so that we shouldn't have to be importing from places like that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that'll change. But uh, right now, it's 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 uh, it is what it is. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. So I want to get to your book because that's the whole reason that we're here. Um, and so uh, when did you did you choose to schedule this trip after you retired so you didn't have to think about all this stuff going on presently? <laughs> um, what was that decision process like for you to say, okay, I feel like I've accomplished what I, I needed to in this career and I'm going to take yeah. a break? Well, um, you know, I mentioned about the boom and bust cycles and um, in my career, I've, I've actually been laid off five times and, um, you know, for different reasons, but they all generally had to do with, you know, commodity prices and, you know, you're dropping into a bust cycle and things aren't going well for the company and they have to start cutting staff and this and that. So, um, so the, the, the last, um, the last big uh, layoff that I was part of was in 2017. And I had opportunities to do consulting and everything. And I thought, well, do I really want to do that? Or maybe this is just the time to just say, this is the end. I'm, I'm going to do all the other things that I've always wanted to do. And, you know, there's so many more things in this world to spend your time and energy doing than working. So, and I was very fortunate that I could afford to do that. We could afford to do that. And so at that time, I just decided, okay, well, I'm gonna call it good and um, just I'm, I'm retired. And so then I started, you know, spending more time traveling and um, doing things like this Appalachian Trail hiking trip. And I've, I've done uh, several other uh, hikes like that, but nothing quite as, as long as that. And, and the reason that I decided to do that was, I guess, multifold. Um, one of the reasons had to do with, uh, uh, and, and by the way, I didn't start out planning to hike the Appalachian Trail. I, I, I started out just thinking, well, I'm, I think I'm going to hike for about a month down, you know, in the southern part of the Appalachians. And and why not start at you know the Appalachian Trail and just hike that to Damascus, Virginia, which was about 500 miles, and that was more than I had ever hiked in my life prior to that. I mean, I had done backpacking uh, my whole life, and um, you know, but just short trips here and there, and maybe a week at the most. So, you know, 500 miles—that that was way more than I had ever bitten off. But I thought, well, well, let's see how it goes, and I've got time to do it, and it sounds like it would be fun. And I've always wanted to hike, you know, at least some major part of the Appalachian Trail. Anyway, I grew up right next to it, and I used to hike all through Pennsylvania as a, as a kid in scouts and so forth. But I had never done anything quite this large. So I started out in uh, in June of 2020. And I flew to Atlanta, Georgia, and then I took a shuttle drive up to um, the start of, uh, of the trail, the Southern Terminus, which uh, begins just north of Amicalola Falls State Park in Georgia. And uh, stayed overnight at this really cool place. You had to actually hike in for five miles to get to this, this little retreat. And you know they served dinner and breakfast the next morning, and then I was off. So I got to Springer Mountain on uh, on June 6th, and um, and then after about a week, I thought, well, you know, this is really hard, but I think I could I could probably do this for 
like, like, why not just do the whole trail? <laughs> so that, that's the point where I decided I was going to hike the whole Appalachian Trail. And, um, and so I, that's what I did. And, uh, and I had to stop a couple of times. I had some um, family issues that I had to come home for. And, mm -hmm. um, but other than that, it was pretty much continuous for uh, five and a half months. Yeah. When I got to Swatara Gap, Pennsylvania, which is about a little more than the halfway point, um, I took a week off and my brother picked me up and uh, I visited with uh, my brother and my mom for about a week and then flew to Bangor, Maine and then started the hike back. And, um, and actually when I got to Bangor, um, I had tried for the week prior to that uh, to get a reservation with Baxter State Park so that I could hike Katahdin and then, you know, the remaining 10 or 15 miles to the end of Baxter State Park and then start on the 100 mile wilderness. But I, I, there, were, there were no camping permits left because they only had so many. And I don't know if it's like that now or if this was a COVID thing, I don't recall. But I do remember, you know, talking on two different occasions that week to rangers you know, on the telephone, and and I explained exactly what I was doing, and they and they basically told me, well, there's nothing available. You'll just have to wait for about three days until, you know, that following week. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. So I get to, I got the banker and stayed <laughs> in a place called Millinocket, um, at at a a really cool little hostel there, and I talked to some folks, and anyway that. Long story short, I, I never I never was able to hike Katahdin and back, and so that always really bothered me. But maybe not so much because I had done it in the past. Um, back in two thousand nine, my son and I had uh, we had hiked Katahdin and then all over Baxter State Park for a couple of days. So I figured, well, I've already done that. It's not terrible that. I'm not able to do it while I'm here and I didn't want to wait three days and it was getting late in the year and, and I thought I need really need to get moving if I'm going to get finished here by Thanksgiving and um and when I when I flew to Maine I remember I left Pennsylvania and I was camping every night and it was really warm you know during the day and it was I mean we were in the midst of summer it was nice. like September 1st September 2nd there was and uh, it, was, it was just beautiful summer weather in PA. And when I got to Maine, like it got down to like 30 degrees at night. And it was really a big change. It was like all of a sudden I'm in, I feel like I'm late fall. And so I had this urgency that I needed to really get moving. And so anyway, so I, I started the 100 mile wilderness, which is right at the Baxter State Park boundary there. And uh, I just started hiking south. But what was really frustrating for me, and and it 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 just it was on my mind like all day long. Like I can't believe I didn't get to do because <laughs> that's like the capstone of everyone's through hike. But um, but the way that I did it, it wasn't really the capstone because it was like I, I thought of it as like an explanation point in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really the end of my hike. It was halfway through it. So it wasn't 
quite as bad, but it's still, it, I, I thought about that continuously and everybody that I met along the trail, the, you know, the first thing he says, how was Katahdin? And I look at them like, okay, how am I gonna explain this in, in this like elevator speech? Because you, know, <laughs> you, you pass people right. all the time, right? Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that, that was, that was very frustrating and uh and and i still have people today when i you know i talk about it and they and they see i didn't hike a ton so, well you didn't really through hike it's like okay you can call it whatever you want <laughs> but yeah whatever. i think i think five and a half months um counts for something i i would think so <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah, yeah. so what is okay so you were you were by yourself for five and a half months pretty much um walking without much communication with people i would imagine i'm not sure what it's like to walk on that trail but i imagine you had a lot of time with your thoughts and yourself i did and yeah. um and i would say that you know certainly the vast majority of my my hike was by myself um, i did have um a couple stretches where um i would meet somebody at a at a shelter area or at a camp one night and then we would be on relatively the same pace and that's really what it came down to at least for me maybe not for others I, I don't know I think some people they just decide they need to have what, what's called a tramily a trail family and that's very cool but a in 2020 there weren't that many people on the trail and and B, it didn't it didn't really matter that much to me. I mean, I like to hike at my own pace, and if somebody keeps up with me, great. If someone's faster than me, great. But I'm not going to change my pace, right? To you know, just just to stay with a group. So I had a couple of folks that uh, I did hike with um, for days or even weeks, uh, but that was pretty rare. So most of the time, yes, it was just me, and I'd see you know, anywhere from, you know, five to 10, 20 people sometimes that it would pass during the day. And often I would, I think more often than not, I would be camping with others each evening because uh, I would typically plan my day so that I would end up at a shelter area. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and the reason for that, one second. Excuse me. And the reason for that is um, shelters always have a water source. They have the shelter in case you need it, in case it, you know there's a dramatic rainstorm around dinner time <laughs> or something. But I would almost always just set my tent up and just camp nearby. And they also had a, usually they would have some type of a bear hang um, so that you could put your food um, up in a, up on bear cables or a bear box. And that was real important each night so that animals didn't get to your food. And then, and then lastly, there was generally a privy there, which was kind of nice. It's just an outhouse in the woods. So little things that save time and are you know, a little more convenient than if you're just camping in some stealth campsite somewhere and you're not sure if there's gonna be a water source and all the other things I mentioned. Um, but I would often see others in the evening um, let's say probably 80% of the time or better. So at the end of the day, you know, might've been hiking by myself all day, but I get to talk to folks and I always look forward to that. That was, 
that was always, you know, kind of a highlight of my day is just, you know, being able to sit down and have dinner with um, somebody I had never met before and, yeah. and hear all about their story and tell mine. That kind of like goes back to your time of working your first job and taking people out to dinner um, <laughs> and getting to know them a little bit. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It, yeah. And hadn't thought about that. But yeah. I guess similarities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there anything spending all this time by yourself that you learned about yourself? Was there anything that surprised you about yourself? During this well, time? I'll tell you what, I, um, I, I would say yes. And, um, and a lot of it was the physical aspect of actually hiking. And this started in Tennessee, or I'm sorry, in, uh, in, in Georgia, right off the bat. Um, there's not a lot of relief on those mountains down there. Mm -hmm. But every day you were just continuously climbing these steep trails. You get to a summit and it's beautiful or, you know, you, you can feel the cool air and it's refreshing and you feel like you've accomplished something and then you could drop down into the next gap and then you do it again and then same thing you drop down to the next gap and do it again and and so those those kinds of um continual uh um uphill climbs i mean they are grueling like you can't imagine and i and i didn't know if i'd be able to do that i was in pretty good shape when i started my legs were in uh, pretty good condition from having um, spent about a year almost every day going over to nearby North Park here and you know hiking around the 40 miles or so of trails and I had a couple of loops that I did uh, on a regular basis anywhere from four to six miles a day and then on weekends there was an eight mile loop that I liked and I did that pretty frequently so I was in pretty good shape for it and even so I felt like, I mean, I was never in the military, but I felt like I was in boot camp mm -hmm. every day. And, um, and I guess this was one of those things that after that first week, I decided, holy cow, I think I can actually do this. And so that's why I was going to, that, that's why I decided to hike the whole thing, because I wasn't really sure if I would have the stamina and the strength and et cetera, uh, to do it at, you know, at my my young age of 62 at the time. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it, as far as what I learned about myself, certainly one of those things was, um, you know, I, I, I was a little bit surprised that I was able to, um, you know, do those climbs as, as well and efficiently. And I won't say without pain, um, my knee bothered me quite a bit from time to time. And my, my feet were always bothering me. They, I mean, you're at the end of the day, you have no idea what your feet feel like after doing 15 miles of, of this, you know, rocky uphill trail all day long for eight, 10 hours. And uh, the, the best thing is taking those shoes off at the end of the day <laughs> and just plunging your feet into a, a cold stream or, or just, you know, putting, you know, a pair of sandals on or whatever. So. Yeah. In addition, I imagine that the food supply was not so uh, grand either. To uh... <laughs> No. Uh, and, and yeah, the food was sort of a, 
it was it was kind of a, a I don't want to say feast or famine, but um, I guess the word I'm looking for is is more. Um, well, I'll just describe it. How's that? Um, every, about every about every six days or so, I would have to resupply, and what that resupply meant was. I'd go into a small town or sometimes it was just a, a convenience store, mm -hmm. you know, along a road that I would pass and um, I would, I would buy my next week's supply of, you know, oatmeal and um, beef sticks and cheese sticks and um, granola bars, um, cliff bars, etc. And uh, so I would have all the food that I would need for about the next six days and I would load that into my food bag and my food bag was anywhere from you know after a resupply it would add like 10 to 15 pounds to my pack yeah so I was really glad that I had just resupplied but all of a sudden my pack weighed so much more and um you know the less weight you have on your back when you're climbing these these mountains every day the better and uh, uh, I remember you know a couple of times realizing I well I just way overbought this week <laughs> and, and, and each night for dinner I would I would carefully pick out what I thought the heaviest items were and that's what I would make for dinner and, and same thing for lunch and, and everything else <clears throat> and just try to you know drop that weight as quick as possible and um, and and it was definitely noticeable by the end of the week. Um, I mean, I felt like I was lighter on my feet because I was than uh, when I when I first uh, resupplied each each time. And I would also take a, a, a day off. Well, I wouldn't take a full day off, but I would I would take usually maybe I would roll into a, a hostel area. Um, mid-afternoon or, or maybe around noon and then take the rest the remainder of that day off and just take advantage of you know having a bed to sleep in that night or a, a cot or a bunk or something like that and um and then also you know i'd be able to do laundry if i felt like it or if i felt like i needed to um take a shower and then even get like real food to eat just one one night <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so each week i would generally do that um sometimes i would i would spend maybe two weeks out on the trail um and and figure out a way to resupply in the middle of that because usually I, I would never go for more than about six days without a resupply um but i had different ways of doing that with uh, some of the shuttle drivers they would actually meet me and bring food and um, but, um, but that was always a kind of a welcome break each week. And, um, so, so I found that it was, it was a way of even, even though it was only about half a day that it would take off, it was a way of sort of relaxing my, my joints and my feet mm -hmm. enough that I felt like I was refreshed and I could go out and tackle another week yeah of that abuse <laughs> what 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 was it that made you keep going oh i i think i think i just had set out in my mind that this is what i'm going to do and i knew what my goal was i, I could see the carrot at the end of the stick and i just i i really wanted to finish it um um 
yeah, I, it, it's, you, you'd asked me, you know, why I decided to do this. And, and I think another part of it was um, when I was younger, I had some friends um, that were in my church group and, and the four of them hiked the trail and, and I was thinking about going along and I, and I ended up not going with them. And I always sort of regretted mm -hmm. not having joined them. Um, and I remember we met, um, I think it was just one time when they were coming through Pennsylvania. And I remember feeling like, geez, I wish I would have been part of this. You know, why didn't I do this? And um, so that was, that was one thing. And, um, you know, and, and it's just something that I had kind of always wanted to do. And, uh, and I like to finish things when I start them. Yeah. So that was, I guess, just a, a driver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was your family supportive of this decision? Was there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so. I mean, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if, it, if everyone really thought that I was going to go the whole distance until like later on in the trip it's like oh he's still out there <laughs> <laughs> was there a moment on this adventure that you ever felt fearful or threatened about your survival um yeah there was there was one time and um and i've told this story you know many times to others i think um, it was probably uh, in mid-October, and I was up in the White Mountains, and the weather was not looking very good. It was it was cold and rainy, and um, I think I was hiking at the time with uh, another hiker named Fenway. And he was from Boston. He was a younger gentleman, and uh, anyway, we were we were sort of keeping the same pace for. Um, a couple of weeks, I think. We hiked mostly through the Mahusiks together, that's in southern Maine, through the Whites, and then um, pretty well all the way through to um, the end of New Hampshire. But anyway, so it was one, one night we were staying in a hut together. It was, a, you know, one, one, of the, one of the shelters up there. Um, I believe it was on Mount Garfield. And the next morning was going to be the uh, Franconia Ridge uh, track. And uh, so the idea was we would, we would get out and we would hike to the top of Mount Lafayette. And then I think it's Mount Lincoln, then Mount Haystack or Haystack Mountain. And then um, Liberty and then on down into the next, um, the next notch as they're called in New England. They don't have gaps in New England, they have notches. And it's all because of glacial you know, enhancement of the, uh, of the valleys and, and so, and so forth. But anyway, so, uh, we get up the next morning and it rained all night and we started, I remember we started up towards, um, you know, the, the edge of the, of the vegetation, the edge of the, of the tree line. And, um, because it was all uphill, I remember taking my jacket off and putting it back on, taking it off because it was kind of raining off and on the whole time, and and it was cold. But um, for me, my rule of thumb was when I'm going uphill, 
I don't like to have a rain jacket on because it's almost like a sweatsuit mm. and it just, oh, it's so uncomfortable. And it's just, it makes me perspire and I get, I like, I'll get more wet from perspiring than from the rain. And, and, and then, um, you know, even if it's raining, my body heat kind of dries everything uh, for me as, as I'm hiking, as long as I'm going uphill. And so it was really cold. So I was, I kept putting it on, taking it off, putting it on. So when we, when we finally got to the tree line, um, the, you could tell the wind was <clears throat> really fierce, but we were in the forest and so it wasn't so bad there. But when we got to the, to the top of the tree line, I remember looking up and, and the wind was just like unbelievable. And it was, uh, it was blowing uh, snow and rain, you know, at the side of my head. <laughs> and I looked up and it was kind of hazy and you know, hard to see, but it was just nothing but rock, like straight up, oh, wow. which was fine. It was very cool, except it was all covered in ice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, and it was kind of hazy, so you really couldn't see the top, but, you know, as far as you could see, it was just nothing but ice covered rock. So anyway, that's what we had to look forward to, you know, to get up and over Mount Lafayette. And so I remember Fenway, uh, we were kind of keeping pace for a while and then pretty soon, you know, he was much faster and younger and stronger than I was. So he, he took off and he was out of sight after a while. And uh, so I was kind of on my own um, trying to figure out, you know, okay, where are these white blazes? Cause it was hard to see. And typically on the AT, I mean, there's white blazes every couple hundred feet or so. And so you always know, you know, where the trail is. And it was hard to see these. It was hard, hard to see the, the white blazes um, because of the conditions and primarily the ice uh, covering all the rocks. And, um, and it was really hard to, to navigate on these rocks. But anyway, you can imagine. So after a couple of hours, I, I get to the top and it is just completely, you know, like you're, you're in the middle of a cloud and 60 mile an hour winds, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Fenway, I remember uh, on the way up, he had these brand new uh, rain pants and the wind literally shredded like the rubber coating off of these rain pants. And I remember he, all he had left was like the linen part that's wow. the liner underneath. I mean, that's how intense the wind was. And this is nothing unusual for the White Mountains, but you know, this was my experience and everybody that you meet who's been in who's been on the AT through the White Mountains they all have this these near-death experiences <laughs> and it's, it's something different for everybody but that was that was mine so anyway long story short you know it it just took me all day to get up and over these ridges and um and finally you know got down into the notch and interesting story when I got down into the notch um finally down you know at ground level again or at uh, base level and there was a there's a road there and I was supposed to meet a shuttle driver at a certain location, which was oh maybe only a quarter to a half a mile away down the road. And so as, as I'm hiking down the road, um, this New Hampshire state policeman pulls up behind me and he jumps out and he goes, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm just going to meet my shuttle driver down the road. And he goes, no, you're not allowed to hike on the road. I said, well, how about if I just hop over the guardrail and I'll just, he said, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. 
said, you have to go back to the trail and take the trail to the nearest parking area. And this was way, way out of my way. So I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, you have no idea what I've gone through today. First of all, I just want to get the heck out of here, you know? And um, so he, he told me to get into the uh, squad car and I thought, oh great, now what? So I throw my pack in, I, I slide in next to it and close the door and I realize like, this is just like in the movies, like there's no door handles or window <laughs> cranks or anything. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of stuck in there. And uh, so he gets in and he asks me for my information and calls calls me into the station or whatever. And they check to make sure I'm not a serial killer, I guess. Oh, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so then, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and we just, you know, start talking a little bit. <clears throat> and um, I told him, you know, I was from Pittsburgh. I'm a retired geologist. I'm just out hiking the Appalachian Trail. I had a really hard day and blah, blah, blah and this and that. And he, uh, he looked, he kind of looked up in the mirror and he goes, hmm, he goes, you know, I went to Pitt and I took a geology class. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, that's great. And so then we started talking. And so then he goes, um, he goes, okay, so where is it you wanted to go? And so he ended up driving me to the location oh. and dropping me off, which was the right thing to do. And it was very kind of him. And uh, I guess he could have written me up a ticket or whatever, but he didn't. Very, you know, kind policeman. So that's how my day ended. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. So did you um, take notes along the way? Did you journal? Like, how did you I did. record this experience? Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> that's a good question um and I, I didn't really start out thinking that I was going to write a book um but I I did take trail notes every night and I ended up um you know I have have them right by my side I don't know why they're still here but I had these little notebooks and you know just every day I would write a page or two or three about um things I experienced um you know what the weather was like uh, what the most difficult hikes were like for the day and people I met and a little bit about them and um I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with them but I just thought well I should really document this in some way and um a couple of folks that I met along the way you know they had said well you should write a book and I thought well we'll see I've never done that before and so I um when I when I got back oh and, and I even thought of like you have a lot of time to think about things, right? right. When you're out there hiking every day. Yeah. So I remember even thinking, like, what would I call this book? And I thought, you know, rocks, roots, and rattlesnakes, that's perfect, you know, because that's what you're looking at all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't trip and hurt yourself, break an ankle or whatever. I mean, you're always looking for the next rock and avoiding the roots. And certainly in the afternoon, in the summertime, you're looking for rattlesnakes on every step of the way. So I thought, well, that's perfect. You know, that's exactly, that exactly describes, you know, what my focus is nearly the whole time on the trail. So when I got back, um, you know, I just put all these notes together and uh, I mentioned text to speech before how I like to use that. And so that's actually the way that I um, uh, created the, the the first crude form of the story was I literally just 
I, I read into my iPhone, you know, what I said every day. And, uh, and then I would copy and paste that from, um, I think it's the notes app into an ex, into a, uh, um, an email and then an email that to myself and then copy and paste that into a Word document. Before I knew it, I had, you know, like uh, 50 pages of a Word document. And, and then what was, uh, what was key to having each day um, journaled was that, yeah, sure, I didn't remember every single thing that I, uh, that I wrote down uh, each day, but when I would read that day's notes, it would take me back to that day, and then I could remember, oh, yeah, and then I did this, or I met this person, or, or you know, things that I hadn't transcribed mm -hmm. at the time, um, and it would just take me back to that day so that I could very easily um, add content and information and yeah. more interesting stories. Um, so that's how the book was built. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So to summarize your book, is there a specific overall theme or message that you would like to deliver to an audience? Well, I think the underlying, I, I, there's, there's a couple of things. Uh, certainly the underlying uh, story is just, my adventures each day and the people I met and the things I did and in the you know the obstacles that I went over and uh, and in fact I, I used to think of this as uh, rather than calling it the Appalachian Trail it should be called the Appalachian Obstacle Course because <laughs> it more described it but then the other underlying theme certainly was the rocks right yeah the geology that was was you know under my feet the whole time and you know, and, that, and that's something I was thinking about all the time. Like every time I would, you know, climb the next mountain, I'd, I'd be looking at the rocks like, well, these are different than the rocks I saw. And then I'd, and I didn't have a rock hammer, so I couldn't get a fresh surface. So typically you're just looking at a weathered surface of a boulder or an outcrop. And it's kind of hard to tell just exactly what that is. Um, and, and I would take a guess and a lot of the notes I, I ended up writing down were probably wrong, but I went back and corrected everything when I when I returned and I actually got down to the point of, of writing this all up. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was really interesting to me just you know noticing the rocks. And then when I got into the uh, Valley and Ridge province, which is the sedimentary section, because most of the hike is along the Blue Ridge mm -hmm. um, or in the New England provinces, and nearly everything up there is metamorphic, meaning it's you know not sedimentary rocks. They may have been sedimentary at one time, but they were buried you know tens of miles beneath the earth at one time and transformed into <clears throat> metasediments. And so <clears throat> most of most of the rocks were not sedimentary. But when when I was in the sedimentary basin in the Valley and Ridge Province, um, I was much more familiar with those rocks, and so that was a lot more, um, I don't want to say it was more interesting, but, but I, could, I could better identify the kinds of rocks that I was, you know, seeing each day. And it was interesting, you know, a lot of the ridge lines were, were capped with um, the Tuscarora sandstone or the equivalent to the Tuscarora sandstone, which is a Silurian uh, sandstone unit. 
and uh, and there's a reason for that because you know the uh, the Tuscarora is is such a it's such a tough ridge forming weather resistant unit that it it commonly caps a lot of the ridge lines and so the trails often follow um, the trails often follow those those kinds of rocks so. So those are the things that I guess would represent the underlying themes of, of the book. And, uh, and I think it's a good story. There's, there's a lot of humor in it. Um, you know, a lot of it's self-deprecating because <laughs> I'm out there by myself and I'm doing dumb things all the time. Like one night I, uh, I, I was running out of water and, oh, I think this was in Maine. <laughs> And, you know, I could see on the map, there's Bemis Creek running through this little valley. I think that's what it was called. And, um, and so first I, I, I came down the trail and there was a road there overlooked this really nice lake. And, um, and I'm looking around, you know, where in the world does the trail go? Because sometimes, you know, you would temporarily lose the blaze and it's like, well, I, I can see people have been walking here, so that must be it. And then I'll see a blaze up ahead. So I start down this trail and I'm looking and all of a sudden it just sort of like, you know, disperses in all different directions. And okay, well, that's obviously, this isn't the trail. <laughs> so I turn around and I climb back up this steep embankment. And um, there are these two people at the top and I can see them watching me. And, um, and I'm thinking, okay, that, they look like they have something to tell me. <laughs> so I get to the top and, and, uh, and of course the guy, he says, if you're looking for the trail, it's over there, you know? And then as I'm looking at him, I see a white blaze on the post right next to him. Oh, how did I miss that? Well, okay. So I kind of slither away. And then when I get down into the valley looking for a campsite, um, I, I crossed over like three or four dry creek beds and it's important to have water each night because you can't cook you need water you need yeah. it for the next morning all that stuff well <clears throat> i get to the bottom and i'm thinking man you know where is the creek you know and this one's dry crossover there's another one this one's dry crossover and and the last one i crossed i remember it was it was a good sized stream and it was nothing but boulders and i thought well I guess the streams dried up. So I'm out of luck. I, you know, no water. And so I think I had like a half liter left for the night and the next morning and everything. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be really careful and just use a minimal amount of water. You know, normally when I would get to camp at night, I would drink about a liter of water and, you know, like, you know, just to recharge from yeah. that day. So I had hardly anything to drink. I remember I, I set up uh, my stove early. Um, normally I would go through a certain procedure. I'd get the tent set up. I'd get camp all organized so that the last thing I would do is make dinner. And then I could just relax, have dinner, and then clean up, hang my food bag and all that stuff. And then go into my tent and do my my evening ritual of you know checking my maps and planning the next day and journaling and everything well so i i did a little different this one night so i decided well i'm going to i'm going to cook my dinner while i'm 
because I was so hungry and I was thirsty and everything. <laughs> and I knocked my my stove over. Oh no! And I was cooking mashed potatoes or something, and and it, all of a sudden they're all over the ground and you know big mess. And a you know I lost half of my food. I had no water. And then I had food all over the ground that's going to smell and attract animals. I thought, oh, this is like the worst of all possible situations. <laughs> so, so I cleaned all that up and finally made some dinner and ate a whole bunch of dried something or other. I don't remember what it was. Next morning, I get up and I'm thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? You know, there's no water, blah, blah, blah. So I walk about 100 feet. And there's this beautiful stream right there. <laughs> I just hadn't gone far enough to find. But uh, anyway, it was a nice surprise for the next morning. And I was able to get my, uh, my water bottles filled and everything. Yeah. So that worked out. That's a metaphor right there. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can think of several. Right? Yeah. So if people would like to purchase your book and read about your adventures and everything that you learned from this trip, where could we send them? Well, I have a website and it's called Rocks, Roots, and Rattlesnakes. And it's no punctuation, no spaces, just rocks, roots, and rattlesnakes.com. And, um, and I set that up on my website. You can pre-order the book. And there's also um, different parts of the website where you can read excerpts from the book. Um, you can also uh, read about me. Uh, you can also read about uh, some of the other trips that I've recently taken, uh, some of the other uh, uh, trails that I've hiked. I did the long trail, for example, last year, which is um, through Vermont. It's a 273 mile um, trail, the oldest continuous footpath in the country, which is really cool because, um, you know, back in those days, they didn't think much about making it easy for the hikers. They come to a, a valley and they just straight down and then straight back up. And really, it's a tough trail. Um, but anyway, so you can, uh, uh, you can find my book on my website okay. and uh, and I, I think you know I think it'll be enjoyable for both uh, hikers and um, folks who would like to hike but maybe they you know aren't so inclined but they they like to read about the adventures of, of folks who have, have done this type of thing yeah great I will add the links to the show notes so people can click on it really easily Okay, great. Yeah. So I have one last question that I usually ask my guests to sort of okay. wrap up. And that question is, if your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Don't wait too long to fulfill your dreams and your, um, your desires for adventures such as this. Yeah. And for everyone, that means something different, obviously. But, um, you know, I look at a lot of the folks that I met along the trail. They were much younger than me. And, I mean, they blew me away as far as their, their pace and their endurance. and their Well, their pace. I don't know about their endurance. Um, I think, you know, I've had a lot of experience with young people, like, racing past me. But I think at the end of the day, 
I may have had a little bit more gas left in my tank than than they did. <laughs> but um, but anyway, I guess the point is, you know, don't wait till it's too late. And um, there's lots of things like this out there to be done, and that you know are just amazing experiences that you can't even put into words until you actually go through them and experience them yourself. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Whitney. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay tuned in to you.